four independent sources. Berkeley kind of went over that, right? It's one book now, but it was four different letters. Um, and then lastly, the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. So for me, one of the big ones was also disciples going from demoralized to martyrs, right? And um, just kind of going from um, being scared. I mean, right? They're, these disciples are following Jesus. They killed Jesus. And now they're like, oh, crap. They're going after all of us. They're going to kill us. And they're like hiding, run away, and then they go to becoming martyrs, right? Becoming like, I'm willing to die for this. So what changed, right? One example I wanted to give you guys um, is for our context nowadays is what if I told you like, hey, um, this is the 90s and I'm like, hey guys, I have this idea for a company and I'm gonna call it Kadabra. And how many of you would invest? Just right, like be like, go all in with me, like this is gonna become a billion dollar company. I, I don't know if you guys would, right? Like, you might think I'm crazy, you might think I'm not, but if my name is Jeff Bezos, and years later today, you're like, this is Amazon, how many of you would invest today, right? Be like, oh, heck yeah, like, that, that was worth it. So, just kind of thinking through that, like, think about that time, like, they didn't know Christianity was going to become what it is today, right? They weren't like, guys, Jesus was basically starting up the start of Christianity, and he was like, right? They don't know it's going to become this billion dollar company or whatever, but... Right? They're like, we don't know what this is for. We just, they're willing to die for something that's so powerful to them at that time. So just kind of a context, hopefully it, it makes sense to now. Um, no knowledge of individual resurrection. We went over this a little bit, right? In um, their times, Jewish didn't think about a Messiah dying, resurrecting. Um, it was more of this ultimate one-time resurrection and also the Messiah coming and, and reigning and powerful king, not, not dying. Um, crucifixion, Deuteronomy 21, 23, um, literally men being under God's curse. Paul and James' conversions, right? In the beginning, we see how James, his brother, isn't really a believer of Jesus, and then how he uh, converts. And then same thing with Paul, going from killing Christians to now um, spreading the gospel. And then early rise of Christianity, unexplainable without resurrection. Um, so just kind of the impact and how fast it kind of blew up in the beginning, right after his... Uh, his uh, resurrection. In the midst of a lot of persecution, in the first 300 years after Jesus um, rose from the dead, there was a large percentage of the population that be that became Christians, um, and there was a lot of persecution as well. So it wasn't like the popular thing, hey guys, we're going to be famous one day for being the founders of this new religion. Um, they, they were heavily persecuted, and it still grew with such power. And people have a hard time explaining how could this little religion expand so rapidly without something miraculous occurring. So now that we've heard the facts briefly, right, we want to kind of give you guys a couple minutes. We'll give you three or four minutes. Pair up um, groups of three or four max. We want you to try, right, and, and just try to think through with your group, like, what are some of the explanations? We saw that historians, right, um, whether they believe in Jesus or not, agree, okay, fine. The tomb was empty, he somehow appeared to these disciples, or they're claiming this, um, and then all these guys became martyrs and, and started dying for what they believe in. So what's an explanation that you guys can come up with, right? Like, try to explain away, like, um, why was the tomb empty, right? So get in groups of three or four, we'll give you a couple minutes and just see if you guys can come up with anything. Just don't worry about what it is. It could be as far out as if you've heard of something before, we might go over it. That's fine, too.
stole him out of there with the disciples um, and helped him like kind of get better. And then of course he appeared a few days later. Mm -hmm. Cool. So, great. Oh, good one. Yeah. Yep. And disappeared. <laughs> and disappeared for good. They're right. They're right. skeptical critic in a rather awkward situation. For example, I had a debate a few years ago with a professor at the University of California, Irvine, on the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this man had written his doctoral dissertation on the evidence for the resurrection, and he was thoroughly familiar with the facts. He could not deny the facts of Jesus' burial in the tomb, the discovery of his empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, or the origin of the disciples' belief in his resurrection. And so, his only recourse was to come up with some alternative explanation of those four facts. And so, he argued that Jesus of Nazareth must have had an unknown identical twin brother who was separated from him just after birth grew up independently somewhere, came back to Jerusalem just at the time of the crucifixion, stole his brother's body out of the tomb, and presented himself to the disciples who mistakenly thought it was Jesus risen from the dead. Now, I'm not going to go into how I went about refuting this hypothesis, but I think that the example is instructive because it shows to what desperate lengths Skepticism must go in order to explain away the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, did you know that one of the world's leading Jewish theologians, Jewish theologians, the late Pincus Lapid, who taught at Hebrew University in Israel, declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. All right, so he does say it in a way that's like, can you believe? But I, I do want to take this seriously. You know, this was a PhD professor, and he was really trying to look at the facts and go, this is really the only explanation I can come up with. Is it possible? Yes. There are some um, pieces of the puzzle that are hard to explain away. There was an empty tomb. What do you do with that? If it was a dinner, well, he stole the body. But there was, you know, markings in Jesus' hands. How did he get those, right? But to think, like, this guy, you know, he did his dissertation on this. And he went to this length to go, man, the, at, the facts are that compelling that this is the story I've created, you know. Or that, you know, he believes that that's what happened um, to be able to explain this. So I think for me, more than anything, it, it was like, okay, this really is compelling to intellectuals, to someone who did their dissertation. It's not compelling to me because I don't know all the evidence I have 
research. Um, and so, um, so we're going to go over very quickly um, the four most popular naturalistic explanations for these facts. And I love your ideas because I think you've all mentioned all of these. Maybe no one said hallucinating, but I think all of you mentioned the conspiracy, apparent death, and displaced body. Um, and so these are the most popular ones that if Jesus did not raise from the dead, as the biblical account says, these are the most popular naturalistic explanations. So conspiracy theory, apparent death theory, displaced body theory, and hallucination theory. And we'll take them one at a time. It's a matter of historical record that Jesus of Nazareth died and his body was placed in a tomb. It's also been firmly established that after his death and burial, his tomb was found empty. Various individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive. And his disciples somehow became absolutely convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. These are the historical facts. How do you explain them? Down through history, various naturalistic explanations have been offered to explain away these facts. Let's examine the four most popular ones. First, the conspiracy theory. According to this view, the disciples faked the resurrection. They stole Jesus' body from the tomb and then lied about seeing Jesus alive, thereby perpetrating the greatest hoax of all time. However, this theory faces overwhelming objections. It's hopelessly anachronistic. It looks at the disciples' situation through the rearview mirror of Christian history, instead of from the standpoint of a first-century Jew. Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would be defeated and executed by Israel's enemies, much less rise from the dead. In Jewish thinking, the resurrection of the dead was a general event that takes place only after the end of the world and has no connection at all with the Messiah. The conspiracy theory also fails to address the disciples' obvious sincerity. People don't willingly die for something they know is not true. An honest reading of the New Testament makes it clear. These people sincerely believed the message they proclaimed and were willing to die for. For these and other reasons, no scholar defends the conspiracy theory today. All right, let's go over the main points. Um, and on your notes there, you have blanks to fill in those four theories right at the beginning, and then conspiracy or theory one, the conspiracy theory. It says the disciples faked the resurrection, this is the theory, stole his body, and lied about seeing Jesus alive. Right? So they knowingly, not believed in something that wasn't true, right? That's something different. But they knowingly lied about Jesus being raised from the dead. The objections to this, like the video said, was, we mentioned this last week too, the Jews had no concept of a Messiah defeated, executed, and risen from the dead, right? And so these 500 people that Jesus appeared to, and all of them saying that Jesus raised from the dead, um, they did not have a concept of that. There wasn't something, a prophecy in the Old Testament that they were trying to fulfill with Jesus. Um, there was no concept of um, the Messiah being defeated, executed, um, and then rising from the dead. It was that he would come and he would conquer and he would save Israel from their oppressors. 
Also, the resurrection in Jewish history was a general event that happened at the end of the world and was completely unconnected from the Messiah. So that's that next point there. It was completely unconnected from the Messiah. So again, never in Jewish history was that predicted that there would be an individual resurrection of the Messiah that would come. Um, so for them to conspire this, come up with this, um, is anachronistic, which that was a new word for me, but it's basically chronologically, right? No chronolo you know, chronological um, like basis where we're here going, well, Christianity is so big now, they must have conspired so that they could be famous one day as the founders of Christianity. They had no idea. They had no idea that Christianity would be what it is today. They were actually, by saying Jesus rose from the dead, stepping into a death trap. They were stepping into being persecuted, tortured, awfully, brutally murdered for saying this, right? Um, and so again, remembering that, and then people don't willingly die for something they know to be untrue. They think it's true, of course. I think we talked about that last week. But the conspiracy theory is that they knew it was untrue, yet they got brutally murdered for it. Um, that was just, we don't, we don't see that. That not one of the apostles recanted, um, and they were willing to die for their, that belief. And that's the reason that really today, like um, Dr. Craig said, but sorry, I didn't really give an overview, Dr. William Lane Craig, he's a PhD professor at Houston, in a, at a um, Christian university in Houston, um, and he wrote this book called On Guard, we'll give the information to you at the end, but that's where this information comes from, and he says um, that no scholar defends this theory today. So, what are your thoughts, what are your questions? We want to pause after every theory and give you a chance to respond. Any questions about this, any thoughts? Yeah. The second point, <coughs> objections or reservations in general, though, So the theory is that they conspired this, right? The disciples said, okay, we're going to come up with this, this idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that, he raped, that he's died, he's crucified. We're so scared, you know, right? In the beginning, they were so scared, they were hiding. And then something happened that all of a sudden, like, we got it. We got the story that he rose from the dead. There, there's nothing that in their history, they weren't looking at verses going, oh, wait, this will prove that he's the Messiah. We're going to say he rose from the dead. So for them to think of that and for 500 people to believe that, because we didn't talk about this last week, but Jesus did predict his resurrection to his apostles, to his disciples. Every time he did, they were like, what are you talking about? Like, and they weren't like, oh yeah, Deuteronomy says that. That's right. You're the Messiah and you're going to, every time, like, what do you mean you're going to die in three days later and rise from the dead, right? And so, you know, for them to believe it, you know, I'm like, okay, maybe they would have been like, oh, Jesus did predict this. But for 500 people, they didn't hear Jesus like that. 500 people um, to believe that and say, we saw Jesus alive. Um, that wasn't something that they were trying to fulfill, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Kind of like, oh, you know, Jesus, like riding in on a donkey, right? That was something that was predicted the Messiah would do. There's nothing that predicted the Messiah would rise from the dead. So it would be hard to believe that 500 people would be so firmly about this is what the Messiah did. And all the Jews would be like, what do you mean? We never got that prediction about the Messiah. You're telling me the Messiah rose from the dead? Um, Justification. 
then, okay, maybe, maybe that's true. And then the idea that an individual resurrection, I mean, that's Stephen King. So I know the same, but I was, in looking at this, I was tying them saying, how could they even tie them together? That's how I tie together. Is there a question in there? Sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, great. I was like, sorry, I want to answer the question. That's great. All right, that's a comment. Perfect. Yes. One, one thing I'd be curious to know, and I don't know if anyone knows the answer to this, but at what point did Christians start to look back at the Old Testament prophecies and start to connect the dots and see how the individual resurrection actually makes sense? Because we reference things, like the example of Jonah and Isaiah references something that could be interpreted as like resurrection. When did they start? Does anyone know when they start connecting those dots and A second attempt to explain the facts is the apparent death theory. Jesus didn't really die. He revived in the tomb, somehow escaped, and managed to convince his disciples he was risen from the dead. This theory also faces insurmountable obstacles. First, it's medically impossible. The Roman executioners were professionals. They knew what they were doing and made sure their victims were dead before taken down. Moreover, Jesus was tortured so extensively that even if he was taken down alive, he would have died in the sealed tomb. Second, this theory is wildly implausible. Seeing a half-dead man who crawled out of the tomb, desperately in need of bandaging and medical attention, would hardly have convinced the disciples that he was gloriously risen from the dead. As a result, no New Testament historians defend this theory today. All right, so apparent death theory, right? This is a theory. Jesus didn't really die. He somehow revived in the tomb, somehow escaped, and convinced his disciples that he had risen. Um, so some of the objections that he mentions here, right? It's medically impossible for someone to survive crucifixion. 
we're not medical experts, so I can't go into all this, and, and there's a lot of resources that we can kind of guide you to that if, if you want to do this right, kind of investigate a lot about how the Romans um, executionists did this type of a crucifixion, if all the beatings that he got before, um, but that's one of the objections, right, that they wouldn't leave people to survive or take them down before they were dead. Um, there's also that mention of where they um, stab him on his side and there's blood and water and there's all this medical stuff there where you can investigate, like I said, um, if you want to go deeper into that, um, that shows some of that stuff. And then it's, he says it's wildly plausible that the disciples would have been convinced that Jesus was gloriously risen um, if he was bleeding and buried alive, right? So being gloriously risen, right, if, if he was, if he survived, out of the tomb, then he wouldn't be risen. He'd just, he'd be alive, but it wouldn't be this glorious risen Jesus that um, that he was he was saying he was. And then again, no New Testament historian defends this theory today. Um, so kind of same thing. Questions and thoughts that you have on this number two theory. Just curious, is it intentional that it says, in the previous conspiracy theory, it said no scholar defends this theory, and this one says no New Testament historian defends this theory. Are there scholars then that? So we were we were kind of talking through this a little bit. And I think the reason why he says this is kind of like going back to the example where the where the professor debates, right? There's there's still people, right? And that's why it says wildly implausible because is it possible possible that you could believe this? It is, right? Like you could stick to this and say nope. Some medically, I I'm still not convinced medically. The Roman guys didn't whip him hard enough. Like, I don't think they did. I don't think they, they, I think they took him down too early, right? So you could still be convinced of this. Um, but that's why he says, I think no New Testament historians uh, try to defend that today because there might be still uh, historians that go, no, this is still an idea for me. Just like the PhD professor, his idea is still the twin brother. And you're not going to convince him otherwise. That's what he's sticking to. That's what he did his dissertation on. So, um, I think, yeah, he, he will mention very different ways of doing it. We didn't really go into why he says New Testament, scholar, and then that, I think the last one, he doesn't even say anything about it. Um, but The last one is the most believed yeah. um, that we'll get to. But this one is, because if anyone's familiar with the Quran, that's what the Quran says, right? So we're talking about a billion, I'm not sure how many Muslims there are, but a billion people actually say they believe this, right? And that would be Muslims, right? They believe this apparent death theory. Um, it says in the Quran that they thought he was dead, but he wasn't. Um, I would love your thoughts on that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, okay. you guys are doing a great job. Yeah, they don't believe that he died at all. Right. So, yeah, they just think it's impossible. Kind of like the Jews, mm -hmm. they just don't see how God would allow one of his prophets to die like that. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's, they honor the prophets so much that they would have a hard time embracing that theory. So that's why they say New Testament historian, because everyone, all the historians that study the New Testament specifically don't agree to that, because you know they've studied the disciples and they're like, man, it's really implausible, not impossible, but implausible that they would see him um, dying um, and being like, oh, instead of just surviving barely with your life, wow, how fortunate that you've risen from the dead gloriously. So. This is a comment. This is one I take a lot of interest in. Yeah. Um, not that. Scripture says Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, so we're talking like his skin's like completely ripped, crown of thorns. I mean, if you ever get cut and put like clothing over it, and you take the clothing, like it's it's like blue, right? And you pull the take off, and then through a row 
but kind of fascinating. Yes. Right. Thanks for sharing that, because yeah, we haven't seen yeah, that in depth. Oh, There's well, definitely evidence. Sorry, what you're saying about the physiological, what I've read is that uh, when you're hanging like that, uh, it's very, very difficult to breathe because the weight of your body is pushing you down. So to get a breath, you actually have to push up with your feet so that you can breathe. So you're always torn between pain of pushing yourself up in your left and not um, suffocating. And in the account, the, the Romans came to take the, the bodies down so they didn't want to leave them hanging there, and they were going to break Jesus' legs. Then the legs are broken, okay, now you're going to suffocate very quickly. But they found that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. So when they were professionals, they knew, it was like, okay, we need to finish this guy off, he's obviously got a lot of stamina. And so that's something that they would do if someone had I believe Roman executionists got in big trouble, like could have died themselves right. if they did it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if they he ended up being alive, so they were not going to, oh, maybe, I just don't feel like breaking his bones today. Like they were going to make sure, so if they were sure enough to not break his bones, why would they ever stop from doing that, right? Instead, they stabbed his side. Like it was on their lives to make sure he was dead. So that's good. explanation is the displaced body theory. Perhaps Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in his tomb temporarily because it was convenient. But later, he moved the corpse to a criminal's common graveyard. So, when the disciples visited the first tomb and found it empty, they concluded that Jesus must have risen from the dead. Once again, this theory cannot make sense of the facts. Jewish laws prohibited moving a corpse after it was interred, except to the family tomb. What's more, the criminal's graveyard was located close to the place of execution, so that burial there would not have been a problem. Also, once the disciples began to proclaim Jesus' resurrection, Joseph would have corrected their mistake. So, once again, no current scholars endorse this theory. So again, looking at um, who doesn't endorse it, it's current scholars. So that must mean that in the past, many scholars had, but currently, scholars do not endorse this. So to review the displaced body theory, Joseph placed Jesus' body in his tomb temporarily, but then moved it to a common criminal graveyard. I think it's something that you said, that maybe he was embarrassed. Um, so the disciples were convinced he rose when they couldn't find the body. 
That's the theory. And the objections are that Jewish law prohibited moving a body after it was interred, except the family tomb, which that's not what this theory is saying. Um, the criminal's graveyard was actually closer to the cross than Joseph's tomb, so it wouldn't have been more convenient. Hey, let's temporarily put him here, which is what some would argue with this theory. More convenient to put it here and then move the body to the criminal's graveyard. It, it, in that time, if you look at how um, Jerusalem was laid out, the criminal's graveyard was closer to the place of crucifixion, and then Joseph would have corrected the disciples' proclamation of the resurrection. Again, we talked about this last week. This proclamation of Jesus risen from the dead was made in Jerusalem. People could have easily fact-checked. Joseph was there. People saw Joseph take the body. Like, they would have been like, let's make sure it wasn't moved, or Joseph would have come, oh, no, I moved it, guys. Um, but we have no evidence that the body was placed anywhere else. All the evidence points to one place, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And so for these reasons, no current scholars endorse this theory this time. So, thoughts, questions on that one? Well, when Joseph fell asleep, he was obviously not going to correct the disciples because he didn't do his job right. Yeah, because he was guarding the tomb, right? Oh, Roman soldiers were guarding the tomb. Oh, never mind. Oh, okay. Because Jesus 
did appear to all these people. I wonder if they were actually punished for that because the Roman, you know, authorities were like, you must have not done your job well. So it would have taken, I don't know what it would have taken, but it would have taken a lot for Joseph to convince him, hey, team up with me. And the Romans were in charge of the Jews. So Joseph was on the Jewish council, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think they were still under Jewish authority. So it wasn't Jewish council in charge of Romans to obey them. It was the opposite. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that's just why I don't mind to be So that's 
Were there any Romans that he appeared to? I'm not sure. Paul was one, but that was well after that. Very true. Very true. Later, Paul was, yeah. theory. The disciples didn't really see Jesus, but just imagined that he appeared before them. They were all hallucinating. This theory also faces considerable problems. First, Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but in different places. Not just to one person, but to different persons. Not just to individuals, but to groups of people, and not just to believers, but to unbelievers as well. There is nothing in the psychological casebooks on hallucinations comparable to these resurrection appearances. Second, hallucinations of Jesus would have led the disciples to believe at most that Jesus had been transported to heaven, not risen from the dead, in contradiction to their Jewish beliefs. Moreover, in the ancient world, visions of the deceased were not evidence that the person was alive, but evidence that he was dead and had moved on to the afterworld. Finally, this theory doesn't even attempt to explain the empty tomb. Thus, the four most popular naturalistic theories fail to explain the historical facts. Where does that leave us? So yeah, this theory, um, disciples did not really see Jesus, but it just imagined Jesus appeared. Um, they were hallucinating. So some of the objections, right, that we see, he, he went over. Jesus appeared more than once in multiple places to different people, to groups and individuals, believers and non-believers. And one of the things that's kind of cool to think about is 
in multiple places, right? Like different regions, different places. So think about it now, like it'd be pretty unlikely that someone's hallucinating the same thing you are like miles and miles away nowadays, right? I can text someone and go like, hey, I'm making up this story or I saw this thing and like, they're gonna be like, oh cool, you, I saw it too. Or you start believing it yourself, right? Um, but back then, like in a few days, they're not gonna travel and go tell all these people like, hey, we're seeing this and we're seeing that news didn't get around as fast as now. Um, another objection that he mentions, hallucinations would have led to the disciples to believe at most that he was transported to heaven and not risen from the dead. Again, this was contradiction to their beliefs, right? In the ancient world, the visions of the deceased were not evidence of a person being alive, but being dead. So if you saw someone, right, come back from the dead, it was, it was I mean, I just kind of said it. But coming back from the dead, it's not that they're alive and they're up and going, right? They, it's just that they had already been dead. Um, and it doesn't, kind of what Chad was saying, think through this, like a lot of these theories might kind of get close to proving one of the facts, but it doesn't attempt to um, disprove the historical fact of the empty tomb. So same thing here, questions, thoughts, we'd love to hear your comments. Okay, didn't you tell us, didn't Jesus invite Thomas to touch him? Physical touching, yeah, would have been hard for hallucination to accomplish. That's true. Any other questions? I, and like I said, they don't say that no scholars defend this theory because this is the most believed one. This is the one, uh, the naturalistic explanation that most people would attach themselves to. But there really are. They would just, you know, I, I think they would just say, you know, yes, it doesn't explain the fact. This is the best we got. This is the best we got of a naturalistic explanation of what happened. Do not believe that there is a God. We do not believe, you know, a man could have risen back from the dead. So this is the best. And maybe we'll still flesh this out and figure it out one day. But as it is right now, um, it does. It fails to explain that fact. But this is the most followed theory. Currently. In terms of the sources of the appearances, are the only sources there are also in the Bible, or are there other like sources? That's a good question. Do you know if there's outside? Yeah, it's extra biblical. You can prove. Each of these theories by going to texts that aren't in the Bible. So these are other historical documents and evidence. It's amazing how much proof there is for the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It is so much fun. So uh, <laughs> this is my son's favorite subject. So <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Specifically in regard to Jesus appearing to other people, though. That, yes. That, that, that yes. Group hallucination is, and my son will give you like by point by point what. <laughs> why that's not even possible. Like, it's never happened, you can't prove it. Um, so, this is something else you could Google and find answers to. Is group hallucination, um, has that ever happened before? Okay. And the answer would be no. Sorry, I meant like, is there like records somewhere other than the Bible yes. of people yes. seeing Jesus? Yes, so the Romans testified about all this stuff. Yeah. So, I don't know those texts, but my son and I were having a, a he, he studies this
to a lot of these things. It's not in the Bible, um, and he was back in that, in that time. He was hired by the Romans. So, to he was hired by the Romans to write these things down. considered a good Jew. And definitely not a Christian. <laughs> Correct? So, that is outside of the Bible accounts as well. Okay. So, those are the four naturalistic theories. Here's what we are left with. Um, again, the biblical account is that Jesus raised from the dead. So, let's check that out. Another possibility is the explanation given by the original eyewitnesses that God raised Jesus from the dead. Unlike the other theories, this makes perfect sense of the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus alive, and the disciples' willingness to die for their belief. But is this explanation plausible? After all, it requires a miracle, a supernatural act of God. Think about it. If it's even possible that God exists, then miracles are possible, and this explanation cannot be ruled out. And surely it's possible that God exists. So how do you explain the resurrection?
crafted this uh, website that answers a lot of common questions that people have about God, and this is one of them. Um, does God exist? Is there any evidence for God's existence? Um, it's called everystudent.com. So if you wanted to check that out, that could be a place to start, everystudent.com, or like I said, on William Lane Craig's website, reasonablefaith.org. So with all of this you know, evidence and the possible explanations, why is this important? We drilled into this a little bit last week, but we're going to touch back on this. Why is this even important, that it's Jesus who rose from the dead, possibly? Now, if this is right, then it has profound implications. The significance of the resurrection of Jesus lies in the fact that it's not just any old Joe Blow that has been raised from the dead, but it is Jesus of Nazareth whose crucifixion was instigated by the Jewish leadership because of his blasphemous claims to divine authority. If this man has been raised from the dead, then God whom he allegedly blasphemed has clearly vindicated those claims. The resurrection of Jesus is God's divine imprimatur on the claims of Jesus that he was who he claimed to be. And thus, in an age of religious relativism and pluralism, the resurrection of Jesus stands as a solid rock on which Christians can take their stand for God's decisive self-revelation in Jesus. The rational man can now be hardly blamed if he believes that on that first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. So um, I think I said this when, I, when we were giving the presentation and um, inviting people to come to this class that maybe you've heard before I can never be a Christian because I'm too rational and I just couldn't have blind faith in something. And so I think this is important because it is really compelling evidence, again, not just to us, but to a PhD professor you see her in his dissertation, right? That's, this is compelling evidence. So you don't need to assume that in order to be a follower of Jesus, you must be irrational deny your rationality, and rely on blind faith with no evidence. Um, and so I think that's one reason that this information, even considering it, is important. If Jesus was actually raised from the dead, then one could argue that Jesus' blasphemous claims, thought to be blasphemous, were actually vindicated by God. Um, and so again, this is not just a random guy that happened to raise from the dead. This is a man who claimed to be, and we're going to look at a video in a second, what were his claims? Uh, what did Jesus claim? Um, why are they considered blasphemous? And why is it significant that this man, other, you know, um, not any other man in history, but this man raised from the dead, what claims does, if he raised from the dead, does that mean that God said, you are who you say you are? Um, you're not actually blaspheming me. You are telling the truth with raising him from the dead. So, go check out this video. Ever since the Christian movement began, Followers of Jesus Christ have said he was God in human form. But what about Jesus himself? Who did he think he was? With the rise of textual criticism and the modern study of history, historians have developed tools to unlock this question. Today, Jesus of Nazareth is no longer just a figure in a stained glass window, but a real person of history whose life can be investigated historically. So let's examine the New Testament, not as inspired scripture, but as an ordinary collection of ancient documents. 
Let's apply to them the standard tests we would use with regard to any other ancient sources. When historians investigate the Jesus of history, what do they find? First, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. The Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for a promised Messiah, a descendant of King David, a warrior king who would bring military victory and spiritual renewal to Israel. They were familiar with the prophet Zechariah's ancient words. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the final week of his life, is attested in independent sources, one of the most important criteria for the historicity of an event. In doing this, Jesus was deliberately and provocatively claiming that he was the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. Moreover, the plaque nailed to Jesus' cross stated the charge against him, in mockery of his messianic claims. The fact that later Christians did not use this derisive title for Jesus underscores its authenticity. For first century Jews, the word Messiah was packed full of meaning. By assuming this title, Jesus was claiming all of this for himself. Jesus also claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus' consciousness of being God's Son in a unique sense comes to expression in his parable of the vineyard. This parable matches Jesus' teaching style and employs Jewish motifs typical of his day, such as Israel as a vineyard, God as a father, the religious leaders of that time as tenants, and God's prophets as servants sent to the tenants. Once there was a man who planted a vineyard. Before leaving the country, he leased it to tenants. At harvest time, he sent a servant to collect his share of the fruit of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sent more servants, but these too were beaten or killed. Finally, he sent his one and only son, saying, surely they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, let's kill him and the vineyard will be ours. So they killed the owner's son. What do we learn from this parable about Jesus' self-understanding? He thought of himself as the only son of God, God's final messenger, distinct from all the prophets and even the heir of Israel itself. Third, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man. This was Jesus' favourite self-designation, being used some 80 times in the Gospels. This has convinced the vast majority of New Testament historians that Jesus did, in fact, think of himself as the Son of Man. Notice, not just a Son of Man, but the Son of Man. Jesus was directing our attention to a vision described by the prophet Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. At Jesus' trial, the Jewish high priest accused Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? His answer left no room for doubt. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. By applying all three of these titles to himself, Jesus was claiming, in no uncertain terms, that he was the very God his accusers worshipped. It's no surprise the Jewish court charged him with blasphemy and condemned him to death. But that's not all. New Testament historians are agreed that the historical Jesus also claimed to have divine power and authority to perform miracles, cast out demons, revise Old Testament law, and forgive sins. He even went so far as to claim that everyone's eternal destiny is determined solely by whether we believe in him. Jesus' self-understanding cannot be reduced to that of a Jewish teacher or a charismatic leader. No. In fact, by putting himself in God's place, Jesus was making a far greater claim about himself than anyone else ever has, before or since. So the question Jesus asked his disciples confronts each of us as well. Who do you say that I am? So that was a little bit longer video, but um, just to summarize this last part, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah and the Son of God and to be the Son of Man. Um, and yeah, I like how the, it ends with saying, like, who do you say he was, right? Like, there's facts, there's explanations for facts. Um, I feel like now it's responsible for us with all this, right? Like, you you have the final say in, in what you believe, right? Like, yes, that you can still think... Um, aliens are the ones that took his body, um, and that's okay. Like it's, it, it comes down to you, and I think that's why it's so important because at the end of the day, you have that decision to make. Um, it's not gonna be a video, right? That you go, oh yeah. I mean, unless I can't see it, it's so obvious or whatnot. Like it, it's gonna come down to you, and that's why it's a personal relationship, right? Um, but yeah, based on the evidence, who do you say he was, and based on your personal experience, who would you say he was? Um, I wanted to share a little bit about my dad. He was here last week and I didn't want to share because he was here, um, even if he doesn't get English that well. But um, yeah, like I can tell you from my own experience, right, like this is awesome and stuff, but the thing that has made me believe in God more than anything is his life, um, right? Like none of you grew up with my dad. None of you really know him. You can meet who he is now, who he is today, the man that he is now, but you, you weren't there as a child like me, right? Like I saw my dad become this man who was violent and like abusive towards me and my mom and my sister um, to this man who's now loving and it's this transformation that happened almost instantly things like I read in the Bible right like um, Saul killing Christians and then becoming Paul that kind of dramatic I didn't kill anyone but um, just that kind of dramatic transformation where you go from being a little crazy to like now you're this peaceful, nice guy and people are like, what happened, right? So um, from my dad being violent and never saying, hey, I love you, son, or anything, just all this stuff to now being like, hey, this is not what's right. Like, I love you. I'm sorry for who I was and going 
okay, why did you change, right? And his only answer was going, God entered into my heart. Like, I, I realized this was wrong, and I had seen him try other times, right? I had seen him like, hey, I think it's the drinking. I'm, I'm going to start to stop drink, drinking. I'm really going to try hard to be nicer. I'm really going to try hard to do these things. And, like, nothing nothing ever changed. Nothing ever ever really seemed to stick. And even when he went to church for the first time, I was like, eh, this isn't going to be, like, a real thing or whatever. And just seeing it stick out for the past 10, 12 years and seeing the man that he is now, like, if you would get to meet him, you'd be like, oh, my gosh, he's an amazing guy. And knowing who he was, like, you would never know who he was. And you can only know by what I share with you, my own experience, what my son can share with you, what my mom can share with you, right? So I like that because it's kind of like, who would you say he was, right? Based on would you believe me, right? Knowing, like, if I tell you, like, oh, yeah, he beat me up one time. And you're like, he's the nicest guy. He doesn't even, like, step on roaches or whatever, right? Um, I can't see him doing that, right? Like, would it take enough for you to believe what I, I'm telling you as well? So I just think it's really cool because um, you have your own choice. And, and I really encourage you to, like, just ask, right? Just ask God. Um, talk to people and, and see, like, hey, I, I want an experience like that. I want to know this. And I think that's going to be a very powerful thing if, if you get to experience something this kind of stuff as well. So to conclude, you know, how could you respond? How would we encourage you to go from here? Um, these are a few ideas. You know, pass this information along to someone else and discuss it with them. We would love for this to be at the beginning of last week's class. We said we want this to be the beginning of a conversation, right? Like, keep going from here. Connect with Katie. You're like, I do actually want the evidence. I want to investigate it for myself. Like, continue your own investigation. We want that. Um, Pray that God would show himself to you and help you navigate your doubts and questions. Even if you're like, I'm not sure God's there. You know, just, you know, talk out loud. Okay, God, if you're there, you know, like, um, reveal yourself to me. Help me with these doubts and questions. We gave you um, two pieces of paper. One is a response um, card, paper. Um, please fill that out. Ask for someone to follow up with you. If you're like, I still have questions. I want to investigate more. That's why we gave you that. Please write um, your name and if you would like someone to follow up with you or any questions you still have, we would love to follow up with you. Um, and then lastly, if you're sitting here and you're like, you know, um, I, I, I believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And if this is true, he raised from the dead. I, I know enough about him that I, I think I'm ready to commit my life to him. I just want to take a couple minutes and summarize what does that mean. Um, and so if you can go to the next slide. Jesus himself in Mark 1, 14-15 said, He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, and Jesus said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And so what does this mean? To repent means to turn. So turning from making whatever is in the center of your life, that could be you, that could be relationships, that could be success, that could be a lot of good things, um, but things that aren't God. And God is inviting you. Um, to turn and to make him the center of your life. To, to repent from making something else the center of your life to making him the center. Not only the center, but the Lord, the master, the one who gets to um, tell you, like, hey, this is how I want you to live your life. I have created you and I love you and I want you to center your life on me. And then to believe. Believe what? Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, and that can be whether you look at the evidence, you're convinced that way, you have personal experience, you're convinced that way, um, but to be really believe and put your trust in Jesus came, he entered the brokenness of our world, and his body was broken on the cross. And three days later, he really did, based on the evidence 
um, that you are convinced that he rose from the dead, and him rising from the dead gives us hope that there is life after death, gives us hope in the midst of struggling and suffering, that there is a God who cared and loves us enough to enter the world and to sacrifice and take, Romans 3.23 says, the wages of sin is death, right? That we earn, the wages that we earn for our sin, and sin is just turning our um, back on God and going, no thanks, God, I'm going to go my own way instead of following you. Um, the wages we earn for that is death, and that word death means spiritual separation. And that's what Jesus experienced on the cross when he hung there and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because the God of the universe had turned his back on his son, saying this death, this spiritual separation that they deserve, that people deserve for their sin, I'm going to put it on you. And that's what Jesus is going across. And so believing is going, I believe that you came, took that punishment for me, and rose again, defeating that death. Um, and um, giving me hope for eternal life, giving me hope for a restored relationship with God, that God created us to be in relationship with him. And so it's just telling God that. God, I want to repent. I want to turn, make you the center of my life. I believe that Jesus' sacrifice paid the price, paid the wages for my sin, and I want to commit my life to you. I want to follow you um, with my life. And so I would encourage you, if that's something you're interested in, if that's something you want to talk to someone more about, please put that on your on your page or come up to us afterwards. We would love to follow up with you more about that. So, any final thoughts before we close? We really appreciate everyone for coming. Like I said, if you weren't here last week, please look it up um, online and listen to that. Um, and these are the resources that we pulled this information from. YouTube those words. I, I kind of did it myself to make sure the right video came up, so hopefully it does for you. But those animated videos, um, that's how you would find both the one from last week and the one from this week. And then Chad said he's going to put the lecture video, so the one who's standing up giving the lecture, he's going to put that online as well. Um, but that is the book On Guard by Lily Langray. I didn't put the website on there, but again, it's reasonablefaith.org is the website. Um, so let me give you a couple minutes to fill out your uh, response card there, and then I'll close in prayer.